I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8. In verse 18, Paul addresses the question of whether the Christian life is worth it. And he, he begins by saying, for I consider. That word consider is a word that means to compute or to calculate. And Paul weighs the sufferings of the present time against the future glory. And then he gives the estimate. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What's the estimate? Paul doesn't even bother with comparative terms like great or greater or greatest. He simply says, it's not worthy to be compared. Now, he's not making light of your sufferings. He's simply making weight of the glory to come. In and of themselves, your present sufferings for Christ may be vast and painful. Paul certainly were. But when they're held up to the glory to come, Paul says they're not worthy. There's no comparison. They're insignificant. They're nothing. You know, if you played sports, you know what it's like to go through practice. And you practice and you lift weights and you run and there's a lot of suffering and there's a lot of pain. But the whole time, you're hoping for a little glory on game day. And whenever you taste that glory, all the practice and all the suffering was worth it. And see, the coach's job is to get you to understand that principle before game day. And that's what Paul is doing for us here. We're still in the midst of suffering. That's the nature of the present time. And so you and I need to grasp this principle. It'll be worth it all. And then in verses 19 to 27, Paul shows how this principle is being worked out in three ways. He shows how this principle is being worked out in three key characters on this earth. And they are the creation of God, the sons of God, and the Spirit of God. And the thing that all three have in common is that all three are groaning. Notice verse 22 says, creation groans. Verse 23 says, we ourselves groan. And verse 26 says, the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings. All three of those references use the same Greek word. But this is not a groaning of despair. Because three times in these verses, we're told that we are waiting eagerly. And six times, Paul uses the word hope. You see, this is not a groaning of despair. We are groaning for glory. And first of all, we see how that works with the creation of God in verses 19 to 22. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Now when he talks about creation here, he's talking about the flowers and the lakes and the trees, the animals, the sun, the moon, the stars. And he says they are anxiously longing. Now that's one long Greek word 
made up of three short Greek words that mean to watch from a distance with your head up. J.B. Phillips accurately translates it, creation is standing on its tiptoes to see. And Paul adds to that that it's doing so while it waits eagerly. I used to watch the science series on TV called Cosmos. And I used to hear Carl Sagan say that this universe has been around for billions and billions of years. And he would stand in front of a a, a screen each week with a picture of the night sky in all its brilliant starry splendor. And he would say in mystical terms, the cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. Well, Paul portrays the opposite picture here. You see, Paul is not saying that we are standing on tiptoes looking at creation. He says that creation is standing on its tiptoes looking at us. Because what is it that creation is anxiously longing for? Well, he says at the end of verse 19, it's the revealing of the sons of God. And that word revealing is a Greek word that you know. It's the word apocalypse. That means revelation. Just as there will be a revelation of Jesus Christ, there will be a revelation of you and me. You say, well, when's that going to happen? Colossians 3.3 says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. We are hidden right now. We are hidden in Christ. And when Christ is revealed, then you and I will be revealed with Him. And that's the same idea we have here in Romans 8, 19. This word revealing is the word apocalypse. That word literally means unveiling or uncovering. The picture is that you're a masterpiece, like a painting or a sculpture, and you've got a white sheet covering you. And at that point in time, God's going to pull the sheet off and unveil that masterpiece. And he tells us here that the creation is anxiously, eagerly longing for that moment. You see, we are the sons of God, but we're veiled. Verse 10 says we are alive in a dead body. We are immortal beings in a mortal frame. John said in 1 John 3, 2, it it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We are already the sons of God, but we are incognito. You see, when, when I meet someone, they don't immediately say, aha, I can tell you're a son of God. No. See, I'm veiled, but I am a son of God. In fact, I like to think when I walk through the woods that the trees kind of get on their tiptoes. You know, they're whispering, saying, I think he's one of them. And the birds are singing, and they're saying, maybe today he'll be unveiled. Now, why is creation so anxious for us to be unveiled? Well, because Paul tells us in verses 20 and 21, 
It's because when we are revealed, then creation will be set free. Notice verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. Creation wasn't created for this purpose. It has been subjected to futility. It is not what it was originally, and it is not what it will be ultimately. Teachers tell you that this world is evolving. This world is not evolving. This world is anticipating. It has been subjected to futility, and one day that futility will be lifted. In the world around us, we have weeds and erosion and earthquakes, cyclones, disease, decay, death, futility. And notice Paul adds, not of its own will, but because of Him who subjected it. It wasn't voluntary. In fact, it's not even creation's fault. No tree ever committed a sin. Creation was a victim. Creation had to reap the consequences of man's sin. In fact, you remember God spoke to Adam in the garden in Genesis 3.17, and He said, Cursed is the ground because of you. And the ground will have thorns and it'll have thistles and you'll have to sweat and toil to produce anything until you finally die and your body will return to the dust, to the cursed ground. But you know what's exciting in this verse? Even though creation was subjected to futility, he adds at the end of verse 20 that it was done so in hope. In hope of what? Verse 21, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It was subjected in futility, but this creation has a hope for that glorious day when all the restraints placed upon it because of man's sin will be removed and the creation will flourish in the freedom of the glory of the children of God. When we are revealed, creation will be set free. And just as creation's fall was linked to the sons of God, so creation's future is linked to the sons of God. And that'll be a great day when flowers won't have to hassle with weeds, when grass won't have to hassle with crabgrass, when water won't get stagnant, when creation will fully reflect the glory of God the way it was meant to. You know, we talk a lot about going to heaven, but in that day, heaven will come to earth. And all the perfections of heaven will be realized in God's creation. I love Isaiah 11, 6-9. It gives us a glimpse of creation's future freedom. It says, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them, and the cow and the bear will graze, and their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and a nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and a weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
I had the privilege a few years ago to go to Africa. And uh, I was, had my torso stuck out the window of the vehicle, and I was filming across the top of our vehicle. About 100 feet away, there was a family of lions. And even from that distance, the people in the vehicle kept saying, you need to be careful because if those lions decide to, they'll strike you so quick, you won't have time to get back in the car. But you know, as you watch lions just sitting there, I mean, they're so cuddly. And you just want to go over there and kind of wrestle with them like you would a big dog. Someday, we'll get to do that. I'm going to have a lion for a pet, and I'm going to have an owl. Steve Irwin, that crocodile hunter, he's got nothing on us. Can you imagine? No vines, no poison ivy, no mosquitoes, no bottled water, clean air, perfect fruit growing everywhere, no corruption, no decay, no death. That's the future for the creation. That's its hope. And so what is its present condition? Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Creation is groaning. But notice, these groans are not death pangs. They're birth pangs. Have you ever had the privilege of watching a baby be born? You know, I watched Lindsay come into the world and there was some world-class groaning going on. It, it was excruciating just to watch. But it's probably the most unique pain of any kind of pain because it was endured in hope. Tempa was suffering for the joy set before her. This is a beautiful creation, but it's groaning. This is a beautiful creation, but it's suffering. One writer said, cold winds moan and earthquakes rumble. All the voices of nature are in the minor key. But it's suffering in hope. It's anticipating. It's anxious to deliver. It can't wait for its due date. It's groaning for glory. And then secondly, we see the sons of God in verses 23 to 25. Verse 23 says, And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Not only is creation groaning, but we are groaning. And why are we groaning? Well, because we're only half saved. You see, my spirit has been redeemed, but my body has not. I have eternal life in a temporal body. And I don't know about you, but I'm not really at home with this situation. I'm not comfortable with this situation. I am groaning. I am anticipating. I am anxious for Redemption Day. I can't wait for the due date either. And to make his point, Paul throws in another analogy. He says, having the first fruits. 
of the Spirit. Now, in that day, farmers didn't have big air-conditioned mega-tractors. They planted and they harvested by hand. They went out with their bag of seed and they scattered the seed around on their farm. And if they had a large farm, it took considerable time just to plant the seed, which meant that your crops would ripen in stages. And so the first fruits were the first crops harvested. And when your first fruits were good, you would say, oh boy, I know that the rest of the crop will be good as well. Well, this verse says, we have received the first fruits of the harvest. We have received the first fruits of the Spirit of God. And because of that, we know that we're going to get the rest, and we know that the rest is going to be good. And what is the rest of the harvest? The rest of the harvest in this context is the redemption of our body. You know, when you think about it, the greatest miracle has already taken place. Your old man has died. You are a new creature in Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit has already come to take up residence in your life. All that's left is for your body to be redeemed. So I wonder this morning, are you groaning for that? Now, it doesn't mean moaning and griping and complaining. It's a groan that says, I'm just not comfortable here. I'm just not at home here. It's what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, For we know that if this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Paul says it's like living in a tent while your house is being built. Now, if you end up in that kind of situation, you certainly don't settle down in the tent. You groan in the tent because you want to get into your permanent dwelling place. And that's the way it is with us. Are you groaning this morning? If you're not, then you're not a child of God. You see, if you're saying it doesn't get any better than this, then your hope is in this world alone. You say, well, you know, it would have been nice if God had maybe done this in the opposite order. I would have liked it better if God had redeemed my body and then later redeemed my spirit. Then I wouldn't be incognito. Then I would have something tangible to see. Well, that's not the way God operates. Because look at what he says in verse 24. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? Hope is one of the great words in the Christian vocabulary. Titus 2.13 talks about the blessed hope. Colossians 1.27 talks about the hope of glory. In 1 Corinthians 13.13, it's one of the great virtues, faith, hope, and love. And here Paul defines for us the character of hope. He says, hope that is seen is not hope. Now some of you are hoping for something for Christmas. Maybe you kids are, I don't know what's popular this year. Maybe you're hoping for an Xbox or a Nintendo Cube or you tell me. You're hoping for, that was last year, wasn't it? You're hoping for something 
for Christmas. But you know, next month at this time, you won't be hoping anymore. Why not? Because you don't hope for something that you already see. Fred and Shirley Jones are hoping for a baby in a couple of months. In fact, they're probably counting the days. But when the baby comes, they won't be hoping anymore. They'll be groaning. I'm sorry. See, we only have hope. We only need hope for the things that we can't see. And Paul says, you are saved in hope. You are saved to hope in the things that you can't yet see. And what is it that we haven't seen yet? Well, we haven't seen Jesus and we haven't seen our new bodies that are promised for us. And so he says in verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, the redemption of our bodies, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. We are waiting eagerly to become who we really are. We are waiting eagerly to be like Him when we see Him as He is. We are waiting eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. And that makes an interesting combination because we are both eager and patient. We will persevere, but we can't wait. We are groaning for glory. And then thirdly, he talks about the Spirit of God in verses 26 and 27. Verse 26 begins, And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. Now that word weakness is singular. Which tells me he's not talking here about a series of infirmities. He's talking about one major weakness. And Paul uses the word our Weakness, And so this is one major weakness, and it's common to us all. In fact, it's even common to the Apostle Paul. Now, what is our weakness? What is the fundamental weakness that we all have? Well, in this context, we understand it. We are the sons of God unrevealed. We are redeemed children in unredeemed bodies. And how does that weakness express itself? Well, he goes on in verse 26 to say, for we do not know how to pray as we should. It was after finding them sleeping instead of praying that Jesus said to his disciples, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I'm sure I could get everyone in here to raise your hand if I simply asked the question, How many need to pray more? Now, why is it that we don't pray more? Well, because your body gets more stimulation out of just about anything other than prayer. Prayer is the one thing that you do in your life that in no way appeases your sinful body. Now, do you notice this? You get down on your knees to pray, and what's the first thing that happens? Your mind starts remembering all those things that you didn't remember before. Your mind starts saying, I think they'll let the stove on. You get down on your knees to pray, and suddenly your body has energy it didn't have before, and you want to go do that exercise and you haven't done for several months. 
You get down on your knees and your body suddenly gets so tired that you can't concentrate. You see, prayer is a spiritual activity. And it pretty well leaves the body out. It pretty well shuts down the body. In fact, the one action closely associated with prayer is fasting. And what is fasting? It's depriving the body. So the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And as a result, we don't know how to pray as we should. And not only do we not know how to pray in quantity, we don't know how to pray in quality. Do you ever feel like you just, you know, you're ready to pray, but you just don't know what you're supposed to be praying for? It's like the mothers of the sons of Zebedee in Matthew 20 who came to Jesus and said, glorify my boys. And Jesus said to her, you do not know what you're asking for. You don't know what you're asking for. Because suffering always comes before glory. James said in James 4.3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Maybe you heard about the little boy who was praying at night with his parents and he said, God bless mommy and God bless daddy and please give me a new bicycle. And his mom said, honey, God is not hard of hearing. And she said, yeah, but grandma is and she's in the next room. We don't know how to pray as we should. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul prayed for God to remove the thorn in his flesh. He asked him three times. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. We don't know how to pray as we should. But the consolation comes in this verse. It says, the Spirit helps our weakness. We don't know how to pray in quantity. We don't know how to pray in quality. But the Spirit helps us. And how does the Spirit help us? Well, he says, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He intercedes for us. That is, He goes before God on our behalf. He is praying for us. We're told a few verses further on in verse 34 that Christ is doing the same thing. You know, Jesus did that for Peter the night before the cross. He told him that Satan was going to sift him like wheat. And then he added this, But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. I have prayed for you. You know what Peter said to that? Here was Peter's response. Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Peter said, Satan's going to sift you, but I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you turn around, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said, I'm ready, Lord. I don't need prayer. See, Peter didn't even think he needed prayer. And if he had thought he needed prayer, he didn't know what to pray for. And we see that a little later that same night because when Jesus made him pray, what did he do? He fell asleep. Can you identify? But the truth is that Jesus prayed for him. And Jesus is still doing that for you and me.
And what Jesus is doing before the Father in heaven, this verse tells us that the Spirit is doing in my heart. And he adds that interesting phrase, with groanings too deep for words. Now that's an interesting phrase. And I'm sure I can't explain to you everything that that means. But let me suggest a couple things. I think it shows us the depth of his concern. If you were going to move a piano and you said, Dan, can you help me? I would come over to your house and I would pick up my edge of the piano. And you know what I would do? I would groan. Because that's what burden bearers do. They groan as they bear your burden. But I know that the Spirit of God doesn't have to groan because he's weak, he's strong. So what this verse tells me is that he so identifies with us in our weakness that he is groaning with us. He's groaning on our behalf. He enters into our dilemma and our weakness, and he gets so identified that he's groaning with us. It shows us the depth of his concern. I think it also shows us the depth of his desire. He so desires, he so longs for what we need that he's growing for it. Now, some have used this verse to support praying in another language. But I want you to look carefully here. Is this me groaning? No. It's the Spirit of God that's groaning. And is it audible? No. It says here, it's too deep for words. This is a wordless prayer. And so the Spirit is praying for us. And guess what? He always gets His prayers answered. That's what verse 27 tells us. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Two reasons the Spirit always gets His prayers answered. Number one, His prayers are always heard. While these groanings are not intelligible, God the Father gets the message. Because He knows what's on everybody's mind. He surely knows what's on the Spirit's mind. And what you have here is God reading His own mind with the Spirit inside of you. And so he gets his prayers answered, number one, because his prayers are always heard. Number two, because his prayers are always according to God's will. When I don't know how to pray, the Spirit within me knows exactly how to pray because his desire always matches the Father's desire. Now what is this saying to us? Is this saying to you and me that we don't need to pray? No. I want you to notice the word help. The Spirit helps our weakness. See, what it's saying to you and me is that we need to stay on our knees because even when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit takes that desire inside of us and makes it presentable before the Father according to His will. Now, this is an amazing insight. Because of our weakness... The Spirit of God groans. And that's the nature of the day in which we live. Even the Holy Spirit is groaning for glory. The Holy Spirit groans within us as we groan in the midst of a groaning creation. We're all groaning. Groaning in expectation. Groaning 
in anticipation while we always keep in perspective the principle of verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now I suppose this morning it would be fitting to close with a collective groan. But we're not going to do that. We're going to close with a collective shout. And I'm going to ask the praise team to come back and lead us in that chorus, Shout to the Lord. I'm going to ask you to stand as we sing and pay special attention to that line that says, Nothing compares to the promise I have in you. That's our hope and that's our confidence this morning. Let's praise the Lord together in closing.